Uh, it's a four-week series, The Art of Neighboring, and this is week number three. Pastor Woodley will be bringing the final sermon uh, in this series next week. And then the week after that, we will be getting a new series called Roots, exploring the ancient origins of the Christian faith. And we're going to be preaching through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, so, uh, but as we wrap up here, the art of neighboring over the next two weeks, I want us to lean closely into this idea of what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, Kevin is passing out uh, response cards. I don't have one up here with me so that I can show you, but um, everybody should have a response card. If you do not have a response card that allows you to respond to the sermon, please raise your hand and Kevin is going to put one in your hands. Who needs a response card? Anybody? Everybody should have one. Whether this is your first time here or whether you've been here a million times, Rachel needs one. Kevin, uh, JJ needs one. Uh, if you guys could just maybe keep your hands up and Kevin will get a pen and a response card into your hand uh, in just a moment. This is why it's so important. Um, if you're a first-time guest here today, we'd really encourage you to look at the back of the card and uh, to fill out your information so that we can reach out to you, so that we can let you know about special events coming up here at Mosaic. We're going to have some of those, obviously, as Easter is only a month away. We're going to be having a Good Friday service, special Easter celebration. Uh, we want to be able to reach out to you and let you know about some of those events that are going on. Uh, but even if you're a regular here and you've been coming to Mosaic since we started, uh, we want to encourage you to fill out the response card, um, the side that is for you. Um, that just says, here's how I'm going to respond to the sermon. And then at the end, uh, at, towards the conclusion of my sermon, I'm going to reference it. And I'm going to be like, pull out your response card again. Uh, and let's see, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? How is the Holy Spirit taking this passage of Scripture and applying it to your heart? We're going to give you some options. You can check a box. Say, I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about this. Or I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to me about this. Um, and responding uh, and then dropping that card uh, in the offering plate when we pass it uh, at the conclusion of the service. So everybody know what to do with the response card? Cool. All right. So let's, uh, let's take a look uh, at John chapter 4. Now, we read all 42 verses of this passage uh, earlier in the service. So I am not going to reread all 42 verses now. But we are going to sum up the story and look at some of the, the more crucial verses in that story as we talk about this art of neighboring. And neighboring... I think, is an art. Now, we got this idea for this sermon series from a book called The Art of Neighboring, which, ironically, I have not read. I think Rachel's read it. Uh, she read my copy. I didn't get to it yet. But the idea is loosely based upon this book, and it's the idea of taking ownership and taking responsibility for loving our own neighbors as God has called us to. In week one, we talked about the great command. The great command that Jesus gave was love God with everything that you are. And then the second greatest commandment was what? What's the second most important commandment according to Jesus? What? Love your neighbor. Okay, so we keep coming back to this question. I should have it up here on the screen. This question, who is my neighbor? Because this is really where... We like to dodge because Jesus has called us to love our neighbors. And we've talked about this before, how we want to think of neighbors in an abstract category. It's this theoretical group of people called neighbors. And so we, uh, we get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. And we tweet about how we love our neighbors because we're standing with refugees or immigrants or things like that. 
So you guys know that I believe in standing with refugees and immigrants. You've heard many of the things that we've said about that over the last couple of months. But saying something on Facebook doesn't prove that you love anybody. Because it's easy to theoretically love refugees on Facebook. It's easy to theoretically love a group of people who are somewhere else. Oh, sure, I love them. We should be compassionate to them. Sure. I'm all for loving immigrants. I'm all for loving refugees. I'm all for loving, you know, the guy that just got out of prison and is having a hard time finding a job. I'm all for loving them because they're not my roommate. But what's tougher is to love your actual neighbors. The guy that smokes weed upstairs and every day it just like fills your apartment with the, the fumes. And you're like, I, I, I smell like weed. This happens to me. I smell like weed when I walk out of the house and I don't smoke weed. But these are, these are my neighbors, your roommates, and you have to share a bathroom. You're like, yeah, you see the mess that this person makes in the bathroom sometimes? And I have to share living space with them. I'm all, I'm all about loving refugees on Facebook. That's easy. I can say whatever I want on there, but to actually sacrifice for my actual neighbors, to lay down my life for my actual neighbors, to inconvenience myself for my roommates, for my coworkers, for the people on my bus commute, or the people on my block, that is a lot tougher. So as we keep asking this question, who is our neighbor, I don't want us to overcomplicate it. What if when Jesus said, love your neighbor, he meant your neighbor, like the people that are closest around you, the people that you work with, the people that you live with, the people that you live next door to, they are your neighbor. The same group of people that you see every day, and sometimes you don't even notice. Many times they don't even notice you. Because as we've said, New York City is this crowded city full of lonely people because we are all in our own silos, we're all in our own worlds, We've got the earbuds in. We're dashing to catch the express train. We don't really want to talk to anybody else. But Jesus, in a world that's divided, shows us a countercultural way of loving our actual neighbors. So the first week we just talked about this idea of loving our neighbors, this command that Jesus gave. But discipleship is not simply learning what Jesus taught. It's also imitating his way of life. So last week... We talked about eating with our neighbors. Why? Why is it important to eat with our neighbors? Because Jesus ate with his neighbors. We talked about the story of Levi and how Jesus went to this grand banquet that Levi, who was a, in, in Jewish culture that he lived in, he was like the worst of the worst. He was like the worst sinner you could imagine because he was a tax collector. He was a collaborator with the evil, oppressive Roman Empire. He was the worst of the worst. And Jesus went to a party at his house. It says a grand banquet. And Jesus is sitting down and eating dinner. And the Pharisees are like, what in the world is Jesus doing eating with sinners like that? And he's had a whole party full of them. So we talked about the importance of eating with our neighbors. But today we want to talk about talking to our neighbors. Talking to our neighbors. Why? Because Jesus talked to his all we're trying to do 
is get back to the Bible. All we're trying to do is first learn what Jesus taught and then imitate his way of life. And if last week we learned that he ate with his neighbors, today we're going to see that he talked to his neighbors. Now, we earlier read the passage, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. Like I said, it's a long passage. I'm not going to reread the whole passage. But Jesus goes and he has this encounter with this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And they have this conversation, a conversation that takes up a whole lot of space in the Bible. It takes up 42 verses is, the, is the, the breadth of the story. And there's this conversation. And it's one of the most poignant conversations that Jesus has in all of the Bible. And it's remarkable just how that conversation unfolds. And I think we can learn a lot from Jesus about how to talk to our neighbors from seeing how he talked to his neighbors. Because all we're trying to do is imitate him. All we're trying to do is imitate Jesus. So if you look at John chapter 4, Jesus decides to go. He leaves Judea and he goes to Galilee. But the text says in verse 4 that he had to travel through Samaria. Now that's significant right there. We're going to stop right there. Going through Samaria was the most natural route geographically. What's the shortest distance between two points? Straight line. Okay. So based on the roads that they had back then, the most natural route was to go through Samaria. But the Pharisees, who were really hard on Jesus for eating with Levi in last week's sermon... The Pharisees had devised a very complicated system of going around Samaria. Even though it was the shortest distance, they didn't mind wasting hours upon hours upon hours to go the long way. Now, why did they go the long way? Well, to sum it up, it was, it was about racism. Jews typically did not like Samaritans. Why is that? Well, who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a group of individuals, as best we can tell from history, the Samaritans were a group of people who uh, came in. They were, they were the, um, the chosen people to repopulate Israel after the Jews had been sent off into exile. They went off into the Babylonian captivity, and so the Babylonians said, all right, but somebody's got to live there in Palestine, so we're going to take these other people and we're going to put them there. And then what happened is those people intermarried with some Jews. And it produced a quote-unquote race of people who some were they, were, they were, they were part Jewish and they were part something else. So this kind of third race kind of came to be called the Samaritans. Jews viewed them as a half-breed. Jews viewed them as less than human. Jews viewed them as beneath them. So the Pharisees said, we will not go near them. This group of people, they have developed their own customs. They have their own Bible. The Jews had, you know, 30 plus books in their Old Testament, what, what we call the Old Testament. The Samaritans only had five. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they stopped right there. They're like, this is all the Bible that we need. So they've got their own Bible. They've got their own customs. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim instead of having this temple in Jerusalem. So there's two competing religions, two competing cultures, and the Jews we're pretty sure that theirs was way better in every single respect. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel at the time, said, yeah, we're going to go hours out of our way to avoid interacting 
with this despicable low-life group of people. That was their attitude, and that was their perspective. And then there's this teacher, this Jewish man named Jesus, who he's like, straightest distance between two points, or the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. I've got to go through Samaria. Now, Jesus was God, and he knew what was going to happen in Samaria. I think... He's trying to make a spiritual point here. This doesn't happen by accident. He purposes. He chooses to go through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. So he comes to a town called Sychar. And there's this well there. It's a very famous well. A well that that, uh, Jacob, one of the forefathers of Israel, had had dug out many years before. And it was a popular uh, watering hole. And so Jesus' disciples leave. And there is a woman of Samaria who comes to draw water. And Jesus says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. She's got a a jar and I guess a rope system to get some water out of the well. And Jesus has nothing. So he asks her for help. And she's taken aback. Because A, she can tell that Jesus is Jewish. She's Samaritan. And B, she's a woman, and he's a man. Not only did Jews not talk to Samaritans, but in that culture and in that time, usually men would not speak to women, especially Samaritan women. This was like this, was like this hierarchy of like, you know, you got good, you got bad, and you got ugly. And they're like, this is awful. You know, you are a Samaritan woman. That was the perspective, that was the attitude from that culture. And Jesus shows up, and he blows up the whole paradigm. He's like, who's the person who's most despised in this region? Oh, the Samaritan woman. So I'm going to talk to her. It's the same thing he did last week with Levi. He's like, who's, who's the most despised? Who is the person that the culture thinks is the worst possible sinner? Okay, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go to the party at his house. I'm going to go to this grand banquet with Levi. Because why? He's the worst of the worst, and I came for the worst of the worst. You see, the problem is that too often we view ourselves the way the Pharisees viewed themselves. We don't view ourselves as the worst of the worst. We think that we're up here, we've got this hierarchy and everybody else, they got these, they got issues. We're up here though, because we're good. Everybody else got issues. And thank God we're not like them. Jesus says, but I came for them. And you're, you're just like them. The problem is you don't realize that you're just like them. Jesus comes for Levi, and then Jesus comes for the Samaritan woman, breaking every possible social convention that he could in order to talk to one of his neighbors. And Jesus begins to have this conversation with this woman, and he says, give me a drink. And she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. She said, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And then she gets a little confused and she says, well, but you don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a rope. How are you going to get water out of the well? He said, you have to understand whoever drinks from the water that I give will never get thirsty again, not In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal 
life. Now that piques her interest and she says, well, give me some of that. I want a piece of that action. I want some of that water where I will never be thirsty again. I'm going to stop right there. Now, this whole conversation is unfolding, apparently, apart from the watchful eyes of the disciples and everybody else. Because the disciples show up in the scene a little bit later on. They've gone into town to do some grocery shopping, and they come back. So Jesus is sitting down in the public square with a woman of questionable reputation, as we'll find out in just a moment. One of the great scandals of Jesus' ministry was that he was always happy and eager to enter into the lives of people who were messed up. And we ought to know that because he entered into our lives. And we are pretty messed up. Are we not? To say that we are not messed up is to misunderstand sin. To say that we are not messed up is to misunderstand grace. Jesus comes and he enters into her circumstances. He enters into her situation. He enters into her life. He is not afraid to break every rule there is to talk to a Samaritan woman. Now, importantly, he wasn't breaking any of the law of God. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Jesus never sinned. There was no law in the Old Testament that said you can't talk to a Samaritan woman. This was a a, a cultural tradition that had been built up. And Jesus kicks that tradition to the curb with force and says, I am here for you and I will give you living water so that you will never thirst again. Now, I've alluded to this woman's questionable character. The next verse, Jesus says, so go call your husband because she has just asked for this living water. She's like, that sounds pretty cool. I want some of that. If I, if I don't have to come back to Jacob's well a couple of times a day, that would be awesome. This jar that I carry on my shoulder or on my head, it gets really heavy when it's full of water. I would love to have some of this living water so I never have to come back to Jacob's well again. So could you give me some? And Jesus says, well, go call your husband and, and then come back, the two of you together. And she said, well, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, demonstrating that he knows all things, says, you have correctly said you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. And she says, I see that you're a prophet. Why? Because Jesus is able to reveal the most inner thoughts of her heart. Jesus knows what's going on in her heart. Jesus knows what's going on in her life even better than she does. So I've often wondered, why does Jesus bring this up? Because it's probably not what a typical, like, modern-day preacher would do. You know, if if somebody says, hey, I want to get saved. I want to come to Jesus. Most preachers would be like, all right, let 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 me teach you this prayer. Like, you say this prayer, and then you're golden. But that's not what Jesus does. He says, all right, you want some of this living water? Go call your husband. (laughs) And then they have an awkward conversation about her sin. An awkward conversation that many of us might like to avoid. 
If we were in Jesus' shoes and we had somebody that says, I want to come to Jesus, I want to get saved, many of us would probably jump at the opportunity to lead someone to Christ. And uh, we'd rather not deal with any of the sticky sin issues. But Jesus doesn't hesitate. Why does he bring it up? Well, because he's all-knowing. He's God. So he knows all things. He can, he can sense what's going on in her heart and in her life. And Jesus knows that a person, in order to come to faith in him, in order for a person to be saved, they first got to understand the depths of their own sin. So Jesus decides he's got to deal with her sin. It's not that she has to clean up her act or be a good person in order to get saved, in order to get into heaven. But she does have to acknowledge the depths of her sin. So Jesus intentionally gets really awkward with the conversation. And he says, go call your husband. Why? So that it surfaces the issue of her morality. Now, lest you think that Jesus was picking on a certain kind of sin, you should remember that Jesus was always the first to forgive the prostitute, the first to forgive those who had been caught in the act of adultery. And he was, some of his harshest rebukes were not for people who were immoral, but for the religious leaders of his day who were filled with pride. But Jesus, who keeps the law perfectly, understands that living around, as this woman has done, breaking, so far, five marriages, and living in sin with a man that she's not married to, he understands that she is violating God's holy law. And he wants to point that out to her, not to condemn her, but to show her that she is a sinner in desperate need of his grace, in desperate need of the living water. So he goes there. He goes where many of us would not dare to tread. And she says, I realize you're a prophet. So since she's feeling awkward now, she decides to quickly do a sidestep and change the topic. She says, I see that you're a prophet. You know, our fathers, we worship on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. What's she doing? She's just trying to, like, get into a religious argument with Jesus. Because the Samaritans, remember, they, they only had five books in their Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. They had their own customs, their own traditions. They even had their own religious uh, temple of sorts where they worshipped. And it was totally different in a different city from where the Jews worshipped. So she's feeling guilty over her sin. She's feeling exposed before this man that she thinks is a prophet who can see into her soul. And so she's like, I'm feeling exposed. I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm just going to lash out and have an argument. So she's like, yeah, so you Jews worship over there. We worship over here. We're better than you. And Jesus says, believe me, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming. And now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people. True worshipers. Jews and Samaritans. He wants them to worship him based upon the truth. Jesus kind of argues with her, but not really. 
He plays his, his trump card and he's like, I want you to understand that the issue is not where you worship God. The issue is how you are worshiping him. The issue is worshiping him spiritually and on the ground of truth, on a foundation of truth. And so she says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain it all to us. She's like, oh, I don't know. You know, you're saying the Jews worship here. I'm saying the Samaritans worship over here. Who's to say who's right? When Messiah comes, he'll sort it all out. He'll explain it. This is her way of trying to give Jesus a stiff arm and say, well, you know, when the real expert shows up, we'll just ask him. In the meantime, I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. That's what she's saying. Jesus said, well, I'm he. The one speaking to you. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Savior. I am the one that you have been waiting for. The one that everyone must worship in spirit and in truth. So then the disciples show up. They're amazed at what they see happening. They see Jesus breaking every social convention to talk to a woman of Samaria. They have this conversation. Then the woman leaves. It's interesting that we never know her name. She's just this woman, the Samaritan woman. This is how the text refers to her. And she goes off into the village and she tells everybody, come see this man who knows everything I've ever done. I think the interesting subtext here is he knows everything I've ever done and he still offered me living water. I mean, like, really? He doesn't just know about my last husband and the one before that. He's known about all five. And he's known about every other bad thing I've done, too. And he still offered me living water. Come see this man who knows me inside and out and yet still loves me. And so the crowd comes out and it says that eventually many people believe in Jesus as they interact with Jesus, they see that she is telling the truth about who he is. He is a prophet, yes, but he's more than a prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the one who comes bringing living water. Now, what can we learn from Jesus about talking to our neighbors? Well, first off, bottom line, here's the big idea of the sermon. Jesus talked to his neighbors, and so should we. Jesus talked to his neighbors, and so should we. I know it's not a very New York way of life. My neighbors look at me funny when they're sitting on the stoop and I walk by, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? I do it anyway, though. And eventually, been able to wear them down, I guess, to the point where now we're having conversations. Now we're at least acquaintances. Some of them, I've actually found some like pretty serious issues that they are struggling with. Like my neighbor who um, told me a couple of days ago, when I say neighbors, remember I just mean people around us. So she works at one of the restaurants that I typically work out of. Since I don't have an office, I work out of restaurants, coffee shops, place near here. And uh, I knew that she had kids, so I just asked her as I was ordering my food. I was like, how are your kids? And uh, 
She said, well, I'm going through a really hard custody battle with the boy's father. I just, honestly, it's really, really hard. This was two days ago, or three days ago. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be praying for you. He said, well, that's why I figured I would mention it, because I know you pray. So I thought I'd, I'd tell you. It's okay. Thanks. Thanks for trusting me. Now, a lot of times I'm in a rush. So I want to order my food, sit down over in the corner. Why? So I can work on a sermon about how to be a good neighbor. And so I don't have time to ask her what's going on in her life, because I have to go talk about being a good neighbor. So today, um, I invited her to join us for Easter service. In the same restaurant, in the same place. I said, hey, um, my wife and I understand what you're going through. And uh, we just want to invite you and your kids to come join us for Easter service. And she just starts crying. They're in the restaurant. And um, she says, thank you so much. Um, I don't know if she's coming. But... I do know that if I don't talk to my neighbors, I'm going to miss the woundedness that is walking around beside me every single day. People bearing deep scars, people struggling alone, people that Jesus would talk to if he were here. He talked to Levi. He talked to the Samaritan woman. Jesus was willing to talk to his neighbors and so should we. I've got three kind of ideas about ways that we can, we can follow Jesus. I should have them uh, up here on the screen. If we're going to talk like Jesus, first we've got to be willing to talk to anyone, anytime. Jesus demonstrated that. He talked to a woman, which you didn't do back then. And he talked to a Samaritan, which you definitely didn't do back then. Jesus said, I don't care. I came for people like her. Talk to anyone, anytime. Even the roommate that you don't have time for. Even the, the guy in your apartment building right next door to you who plays the music really loud till 3 a.m. and annoys the snot out of you. And you're like, just wish he would change his behavior. The people that we don't have time for, the people that are an annoyance to us, the people that irritate us, the people that were like, man, I wish I had better roommates or I wish I had you know, better people across the hall from me or upstairs. I wish I had different coworkers. Like most of them are pretty good, but there's this one who just rubs me the wrong way. Like these are the kinds of thoughts that we have. But Jesus was willing to talk to anyone, anytime. Anyone anytime but when he talked he pointed forward toward an eternal reality how do we know that well he takes a conversation about water the most basic building block of life and a necessity for us to survive upon and he turns that conversation into a gospel conversation by pointing forward toward an eternal reality he says you know water's great but there is a water that you can drink from that gives everlasting life. Water that you can drink from and you will never thirst 
again. What is he doing? He is pointing forward towards an eternal reality. He is wetting her appetite. He is, he is uh, creating curiosity. He's creating curiosity. Why? So that she'll ask him what he's talking about. And it worked. She said, well, what are you talking about? He said, oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you about this living water. Let me tell you about the Messiah who can save you. I found that um, just having conversations with people, like a lot of times we think, well, if I'm going to talk to my neighbors, like I have to be like, knock on the door. Hi, neighbor. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Rick, and uh, I just want to know about Jesus, and there's heaven and there's hell, and like I hope you don't choose wrongly, and um, I don't know what else to say, so here's some brownies I made you buy, um, and it's real awkward. What Jesus does is he gets into a conversation because for this one day, he's in a relationship with a woman at a well. He's in close proximity to her, so he's, he's doing life with her. And then he brings the conversation around, and he makes it kind of, um, it's not a clear-cut statement that Jesus makes, because he is intentionally trying to provoke curiosity in her. So I remember one time uh, when I was in college, and I worked at a restaurant called Chick-fil-A, and uh, I was on my lunch break. And I was sitting there on my lunch break, uh, and I was studying because I was in college. So I thought, I have 30 minutes. I'm going to read this textbook while I eat my lunch. Um, and it happened to be about the book of Revelation. And uh, the class was about the book of Revelation, uh, which is the last book of the Bible. If you're not familiar with it, it's a little bit um, uh, uh, scary, some think. And so I'm reading it, and uh, reading this, this textbook, and uh, my coworker sits down across from me, and she says, so what you doing? I said, well, I'm doing some schoolwork while I'm on my lunch break. She says, well, what are you studying? And I said, well, <clears throat> so I'm studying how Christians think the world is going to end. Now, why do you think I said it that way? Because I wanted her to ask a question. What question do you think I wanted her to ask? Well, how do Christians think the world's going to end? And you know what? It worked. She asked that question. So I was like, oh, well, here's how Christians think the world's going to end. And so I told her a little bit. I said, but the cool thing is, now, I'm not going to be around for that. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm following Jesus. And uh, so I don't have to experience this wrath that the Bible talks about for all those who are not following Jesus. This is not my destiny. And she said, well, um... How can I, like, be a part of that? It's like, oh, thanks for asking. So then I was able to share the gospel with her. Um, now, she didn't get saved that day, but over the course of a year, and a year of those kinds of conversations, she eventually came to faith in Christ. Because we were in a relationship, and what I tried to do was imitate Jesus, who found a way in conversations to point forward to an eternal reality. I could have just said, I'm studying the book of Revelation. He said, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to go back to eating my salad. But instead it was, I'm studying how Christians think the world is going to end. Because I know that will provoke her curiosity. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to provoke curiosity because we have the greatest message, the message of grace that has ever been given.
We talk like Jesus by being willing to talk to anyone anytime and by pointing forward toward an eternal reality. But we also talk like Jesus by speaking with both grace and truth. So sometimes we pit grace and truth against one another. You think you, you're either full of grace and you're never hard on anybody or you're full of truth and you're always hard on people. But the Bible says that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And he modeled both of those in his conversation with his neighbor, with the Samaritan woman. He shows grace by being tender and compassionate and hanging out with a woman that nobody else had time for. That's grace. But he also showed truth by being willing to have that awkward conversation about her sin. By being willing to go there when many of us would not. Because Jesus understands that both grace and truth are essential. Many of us are going to be tempted in our conversations with our neighbors to either be full of grace or full of truth. But you see, we don't really have that option. That's a false dichotomy. We have to be full of both grace and truth. Willing to deal with sin, but in a rush to hang out with sinners. Let me say that again. Willing to deal with sin, but in a rush to hang out with sinners. Why? Because our sin has been dealt with at the cross, and we are the sinners that Jesus was in a rush to hang out with. So we talk to our neighbors with grace and with truth. Now, I want you to pull out your card, your response card that everybody got. I want everybody to fill this out today. I want you to take that out, grab the pen that hopefully Kevin gave you. We're suggesting a few next steps for you. First, this is one that keeps recurring throughout this series, is to learn who your neighbors are. It is impossible to obey the command of Jesus to love our neighbors if you don't actually know who they are. So maybe your next step this week is, I've got to figure out a way to learn my neighbor's names. Maybe it's, I, you know, I hear that guy next door and you know he's like cheering la- late late at night for that basketball game but that's all i know about him. i don't know who he is i just know he's always rooting for the knicks maybe you should knock on the door and introduce yourself and learn his name that's it i'm not saying you have to do something super complicated but just be a good neighbor be neighborly Second idea is to pick one neighbor to talk to. Now, I realize we're surrounded by lots of neighbors. And ideally, we should be friendly toward all of them. I think that is what Jesus wants us to do. But that can be overwhelming, especially in a place like New York City, where you might have hundreds of neighbors on your very block. So pick one. You see, a lot of times, we we let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, that's too many, too much. I I can't do it. Well, I think Jesus would say, just pick one. Just pick one neighbor and love them this week. Go talk to them. Go have a conversation. I was in a rush today as I was leaving this restaurant. I had to, I had, I had to go um, back to the house and get stuff ready and help Sonny get the kids ready for church and come on out here. I was like, on my way out the door, I knew I needed to talk to this girl behind the counter and invite her to the Easter service. I say specifically that we want her children 
to come and to experience it because of the pain that they're going through. Like, I don't have time for that. But that misses the whole point. If I don't have time for people, if I don't have time to talk to my neighbors. For some of us, and uh, this is, uh, I think, a great idea I learned from Dan. Like, a lot of us are just scheduled. Too f- our lives are too scheduled. And we don't actually have time to interact with our neighbors. Like, when a neighbor finally is like, hey, we should grab coffee. You're like, I have a free day in um, uh, 17 days. Um, how about we grab coffee in 17 days? Well, they forgot about it by then. They don't care about it by then. And the conversation opportunity is lost. Maybe we should live simpler lives so that we can actually have time to talk to our neighbors. Sometimes, like, when it gets warm, I'll just go out and sit on the stoop in front of the house. Why? Because all my neighbors are going to be sitting on their stoops. That drives me crazy, I'll be honest, because I'm a very task-oriented guy. I'm like, I could be like, I could be working on a sermon, or I could be, you know, reading a book, or working on this church program, or I could, like, there's a, I could be in meetings. The idea of just sitting on my stoop to wait and see if maybe I might get into a conversation with one of my neighbors. I have all this internal tension over that. But, like, when the weather gets warm and the ice cream truck is showing up on our block, I know where all my neighbors are going to be. Sitting on the stoop. So maybe I should be where they are. Learn who my neighbors are. Pick one neighbor to talk to. One suggested next step is to invite one neighbor to Easter service. It's supposed to be like, I, I, don't, I struggle to know how to talk to my neighbors about God. And I get that. It can be intimidating. Maybe your first step is to say, well, Easter's on April 16th. Why don't you come with me to my church? Check it out. I get that you're not sure about Jesus. I get that you're not sure about the Bible. But why don't you come and hear what we believe about a man that we think used to be dead and is now alive. And how the fact that he's not dead anymore changes everything. So maybe you want to invite somebody to Easter. We're going to be passing out um, Easter invite cards next Sunday. We've got cards that we're going to put in your hands so that you can give them to your friends, give them to your neighbors, to invite them to church. Maybe there's something else that the Holy Spirit is showing you and you want to jot that down on the card. Maybe there's another way that God is speaking to you and saying, here's how I want you to be a good neighbor this week. But I want us to focus on talking to our neighbors. How's everybody going? You filling something out on the card? I want to encourage you to drop that in the offering plate at the end. That way your missional family leader or one of the pastors can follow up with you and be like, hey, so I saw that this week you were going to try to talk to, you know, Muhammad. How did that conversation go? Because we want to encourage one another and spur one another on to good works. So we learn who our neighbors are. We pick one to talk to. We invite somebody to Easter service. I've got a picture of a gentleman whose story I want to share with you. Don't know his name. He's a part of the um, Humans of New York project that tells stories of anonymous New Yorkers. He was a medic in Afghanistan uh, in the war zone. And here's what he said. I'm going to read it. It's um, a couple of paragraphs here, but I feel like the very words of his story are important. He said, I don't think it's possible to be a medic in a conflict zone and not have something stay with you. 
something that you didn't have before you went. I had the hardest time forgetting this little girl. She was brought to our post one day. Two men ran toward us carrying a bundle of blankets and they're yelling in Pashtu. And at first all I can see are these bloody blankets, but then I peel them back and there's this little girl inside. She stepped on a landmine while playing soccer. I'm not going to describe it as he does, but it's, it's very grotesque and very horrific. He said, I can smell the flesh, I can hear her screaming, but I'm trained to drown it out. I'm trained so well that I almost don't hear the screaming. I focus on our interventions, stop the bleeding, apply tourniquets, administer the IV. I overdosed her on morphine and I'll never forget that. I just kept pushing until the screaming stopped. And then a helicopter came and got her and she lived. I was fine throughout the whole thing. I was just like a robot. I'd been trained for chaotic situations, but they don't train you for the aftermath. They don't train you for when the helicopter has lifted off and suddenly everything is quiet. In Afghanistan, I spent so much time imagining what it would be like when I came home. I built up this perfect world. I imagined eating a big cheeseburger and taking the longest shower and meeting up with all my friends. Maybe we'd even take a trip to the beach just to catch up and everything would be just like when I left. And people would be so happy to see me because they'd be thankful for the sacrifices that I made. But when my plane landed, nobody was there to meet me. My mom couldn't afford to take off work. My father had died while I was gone. The rest of my family couldn't afford to travel. One of the first things I did was visit the two friends who had written me letters. The whole time I was in Afghanistan, I only got four letters from two friends. So I had to visit them right away to tell them that those letters meant the world to me. But after those visits, I was pretty much by myself. So I sat in my room and I started thinking. I'd been so busy in Afghanistan because there was always a job to do, but now it was quiet. So I thought about all the things that I'd kept at bay. I thought about the little girl that I saved and what her life is like now, and I wondered if she's still alive. And if she is still alive, does she even want to be? This is one of our neighbors. This is a New Yorker. Somebody walking around with an invisible wound from the trauma of the war that he has fought. If we don't talk to our neighbors, we'll never know the pain that they're carrying. We'll never know the depth of their wound. And we'll definitely never be able to introduce them to the one who can heal those wounds. Jesus talked to his neighbors. And so should we. So the question really is, who are you going to talk to this week? Who are you going to talk to? Let's pray. As our band comes to lead us in one final song, with every eye closed, every head bowed, nobody looking around. Maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe you haven't loved your neighbors well. Maybe you haven't talked to them. And God is challenging you about this. I want to encourage you to respond as we're singing. Maybe you want to stand and lift your arms and praise. Maybe you want to sit there quietly and pray while the band is singing. However you want to respond, I do want to challenge you. 
to think about how you can excel at the art of neighboring. Because we have been neighbored by somebody who didn't love us from afar, but he moved into the hood with us and he took up flesh and he became one of us. It's the ultimate in neighboring. It's the ultimate in love. And the way we have been loved is the way we are to love. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would have your way in this service. As we conclude, as we um, just think about what you were saying to us, I pray that you would have your way. That we as a church family would excel at the art of neighboring, loving people who are far from you, but who are in close proximity to us. Help us to take advantage of these opportunities to point forward to an eternal reality. It's in your name we pray.